Hello, everyone. Welcome to NKBA Live. I'm Bill Darcy, and it's great to be back with you today for our live webcast of Brave New Business. We hope you and your families had a good summer and a happy, healthy Labor Day. Today's conversation is centered on a topic that is of paramount importance to anyone who sells anything to consumers. And I think ultimately that applies to just about everyone in our business. Whether selling directly to consumers, to dealers, or selling your design or remodeling services, all efforts are aimed at getting something into the homeowner's hands. Before we get started, just a note that today's session uh, normally qualifies and today does as well for a half CEU for our certified members. And I'm sure there'll be lots of questions uh, for our panelists at the end. So please remember to type those in the Q&A function at the bottom of your screen. I'd also like to thank Ashley Gassette, a winner in our 2019 design competition in the large luxury kitchen category whose beautiful design you see behind me today. As we know, retail is constantly evolving and has been since the dawn of ancient marketplaces. But fast forward a couple thousand years, it's no secret that the structure of modern retail has been undergoing a transformation for the better part of the last quarter century. With intense competition, retailers knew they had to adapt to give people a reason to come into their stores, let alone into their wallets. Retail was becoming more entertainment focused and more about the experience and the high level of service a merchant could create for the consumer. They came, then came you know, e-commerce and the evolution of technology and infrastructure to satisfy the growing demand of online shopping. This was a big red flag for traditional brick and mortar stores and savvy retailers knew that they had to adapt to bring an even more varied entertainment experience or shutter. Especially at the high end, manufacturers invested in well-placed mega stores, PR palaces to serve their marketing purposes, tell a story about their brand and build a name awareness. Think about the success of a Ralph Lauren. I'm reminded of a story many years ago, I met someone from a software giant that took over the accounting world. She gave me her business card and it read, Chief Storyteller. Even an accounting software firm was selling its brand. Still, sales growth was beginning to migrate online. And this was way before COVID-19 disrupted everything yet again. We'll be discussing this today with our panelists who have each have a unique perspective on where retail is headed and what might happen when some semblance of normal activity returns. My guests are Russ Diamond, president and CEO of Snyder Diamond, one of the premier kitchen appliance, decorative plumbing and hardware showrooms in the country and futurist and keynote speaker and author, Doug Stevens, founder of Retail Profit. Russ is a Southern California-based entrepreneur whose vision and leadership positions him as a prominent industry influencer and one who continues to redefine the luxury kitchen and bath landscape. Russ's family-owned business is a go-to resource for top architects, builders, design pros, and consumers. His company has created a customer experience that's unrivaled in the industry. Welcome, Russ. Hi, Bill, and uh, thanks for including me on today's panel. And hi, Doug, great to see you again. Um, not sure if the next big thing is uh, real elusive, but our number one goal always in objective is always to take care of the customer. Always at, at times, at times kind of seems a little elusive, but it's really trying to anticipate and recognize how to take that uncertainty out of the process, especially the decision making. Um, 
Uh, our wings have been clipped a little bit because of the pandemic. We've had to curtail uh, a lot of our factory and trade show visits, both domestically and internationally. Um, typically, I travel the globe looking for the latest and greatest, looking for inspiration for new products, uh, new vendors and ideas just to incorporate back into our showroom. Um, and also relationships and the, the family-owned companies around the world those are really big, so we really vet out those kinds of uh, vendors that we bring into our showroom so we know that they will service, always be of service to our customer. Thanks, um, Russ. Um, just uh, I just wanted to introduce our other guests as well. Uh, Doug, uh, as uh, Russ Diamond, our other guest, yeah. uh, established Retail Profit, a global retail industry consultancy, and spent two years, or I'm sorry, two decades in the retail environment running Genovic, one of New York City's most historic home decor retailers. Doug is the author of three books, including uh, the international bestseller, Reengineering Retail. And he has another book coming out in May called Resurrecting Retail, The Future of Business in a Post-Pandemic World. So we're so excited to have him share some highlights of his research for this book. And please check your favorite bookseller next year and, and grab a copy. Glad to have you with us, Doug. Uh, everything starts with the consumer's mindset. So. Um, going back to you for a minute, can you tell us about their thinking and perspective during times of disruption, such as what we're experiencing now and how this change will impact life in general and retail specifically? Yeah, of course. And, and thank you very much for having me, Bill. I appreciate it. Um, so one of the first questions when I sat down to write this new book, Resurrecting Retail, was, was exactly that. I, I tried to get my head around what a consumer's mindset is in a time of crisis. And I think we have this sort of superficial view of customer behavior in the sense that, you know, everything is fine and then a crisis occurs and then consumers stop spending, but all of that demand just remains pent up and we can look forward to all that demand when the crisis lifts. I found that that is not exactly the case. And my research took me to a gentleman by the name of Sheldon Solomon. He's a research scientist and a uh, social psychologist who did a tremendous amount of work around 9-11 and what consumer behavior was both during and, and, and after the crisis. And what he found was that there's a real rebuilding of our worldview that has to take place. As consumers, we sort of build this worldview around us that includes family, it includes work, hobbies, uh, church, if you're, if you're uh, a person of faith, all of these things sort of make up this worldview and material possessions are part of that as well. And then when a crisis occurs, that worldview sort of crumbles down around us. And as consumers, we quickly try to rebuild it. So the first part of the, the first building block, if you will, in that worldview is safety and security. The feeling of, you know, just sort of keeping the crisis at bay. And so we saw panic buying. We saw hoarding going on at the beginning of this crisis. Uh, we saw some really antisocial behaviors, but all of that is really a response to that feeling of insecurity. Then there's distraction. We also look for things that can distract us from the threat, you know, take our minds off a little bit. So we saw, you know, people were kind of like watching all of Netflix, you know, <laughs> virtually everything that was available. Um, and we've seen in, in that process, we've seen people also undertaking home improvement projects. Why? 
because home gives me a sense of security and safety. Improvement to my home embellishes that sense of safety and security. And oh, by the way, these kinds of projects are also distractions from what's going on around me. So, you know, part of that rebuilding process, in fact, has played, I think, quite well into uh, some of these home improvement projects. And when you couple that with the fact that people did not go on summer vacation this year in most cases, and they're probably not going to go on a winter vacation, they've got excess funds now in reserve that can be spent on some of those things that feed those kind of basic needs. Yeah, interesting stuff. So back back to you, Russ. I, I, yep. I didn't mean to cut you off before. So no, no, no. To Sorry, elaborate no. <laughs> as a luxury, a luxury retailer, you, right. you know, obviously the in-store experience is just a critical part of your business. So how have you enhanced your online presence during the pandemic? Any new technologies or things you've looked at? Well, you know, as I was stated before, and I can verify what Doug is saying, um, you know, we're always trying to be first with what's next. And not only in the unique merchandising things that we're doing and presenting and I think experiential was a term that's a buzzword today, but we've been doing that for a number of years in terms of how we merchandise and how we immerse the customer in our showroom. As far as online, um, it really forced us to make you know a few pivots. Um, we were lucky to um, to be able to remain open throughout the pandemic as an essential business because we're serving uh, building professionals and plumbers as well as the luxury consumer. So, um, you know, some of the, what we found was there was a real disruption in the supply chain. And um, we were having uh, problems because a lot of our vendors either shut down for a period of time, especially our international ones. The Italian vendors, you know, were down for a couple months. And even uh, uh, domestically, some of the appliance manufacturers had to shut their factories either because of disease or taking no chances. Um, so we have found trying to remain, provide the, the, the same service levels have been a real challenge. So we had to make some, uh, some quick pivots. Um, uh, although the, the showroom traffic did dwindle for the first month or two, it, it's kind of back even it has exceeded um, levels that were before the pandemic from the start of the year, just because of what Doug was saying. People are looking at their uh, their kitchens, their bathrooms, and even their outdoor spaces. So their lifestyles and enhancing them. So one of the, some of the things that we had to do is we had to, to really anticipate a lot of our orders, looking at future orders. We had to expand our warehouse space. We, we employ, we brought in more support people. Um, we um, uh, hired um, a director of training, so we're really using the time to train our people, not only on product knowledge, but on sales skills, as well as, um, you know, we've even changed out our whole marketing staff, more focusing on some of the social media platforms and digital platforms to, um, uh, and looking at the analytics, really to influence how we do and where we go, you know, into the future. Yeah, it's great, great stuff. Doug, you, you've told us that uh, you regard the integration of e-commerce and brick and mortar retail as more uh, trading roles. Can you, can you talk about that a bit? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I mean, if we, it, oftentimes we can sort of inform ourselves about the future by looking at the past and, um, if we look at the past of retail, let's go back 40 years. <clears throat> Essentially, the model was that as a brand, all you needed to do to really outcompete your your rivals was buy more media. 
if you could buy more media and if that media was effective, you could drive people to your doorstep. And then essentially it was up to the store to close the sale. What's happened though over the last 25 years or so is that the model is starting to reverse. And what I mean by that is if we, if we go back even further, if we go back a thousand years, where people got their, their uh, most vital sources of media was from the marketplace. And you mentioned that in the introduction, you know, a thousand years ago, that was sort of the media hub. We went there to get information, to talk about politics, to find out what new togas were in style. You know, mm. all of those things happened in the market square. And then eventually that gave way to the printing press and then the printing press to radio and radio to television. And now the digital universe is sort of the campfire that we all gather around for news, information, commerce, et cetera. The problem is, Bill, the cost of digital media now has escalated to a point where many brands simply cannot even afford to play in that space. The, the marginal return on customer acquisition through digital channels now is exorbitant and, and in many cases can outweigh the lifetime value of the consumer. So what's happening is that physical spaces, physical experiences, stores, showrooms, etc., are becoming a more efficient, effective, and galvanizing form of media experience to acquire new customers. And then once you acquire that customer, to be able to connect with them, communicate with them, even interact with them, and yes, even give them the ability to buy things from you online, right? So rather than acquiring consumers online and driving them to brick and mortar, what we have found is that in the broader retail industry, smart brands are using their physical assets as a customer acquisition mechanism and then converting that consumer into an online consumer that can relate and react with the brand anywhere they happen to be. So yeah, there's this really interesting trading of roles. And, and it doesn't mean that stores are outmoded and that everything is going to go online. It means that the role of the store is quite different than it might have been 40 years ago. Very, very interesting stuff. About, about 10 years ago, I was introduced to Zmot, Zero Moment of Truth by Kohler Executive, actually. Uh, Zmot, if those are not familiar, is a term coined by Google referring to the research that's conducted online about a product or service before you buy it. According to Google's research, 88% of American customers do online research before actually buying a product. So Russ, we know this research is critical to determining product performance and practicality, but depending on the product, it can leave something out, such as the emotion a product drives, which can greatly influence the purchase decision, as we know. Can you tell us about how the internet has changed the way customers interact with brands and the importance of the in-store experience? Uh, uh, well, we found, uh, and this has been happening for a few years now, people are coming in very well educated. So um, they're asking for brands. So um, some of the brands that are out there, um, they're actually specifically requesting certain brands. And so um, uh, what we try to do is we try to take a lot of our products and we try to bring life to them, whether they be working, we have cooking so cooking uh, demos in the store, whether it be showing a, a, a working pizza oven, or even we've incorporated on the wellness side, um, a, a new technology, it's called the zero body uh, floating bed, which replicates a floating tank. And it's really, a, and, and we've combined, for instance, 
with a local neurosurgeon in the marketplace. So not only is it helping your physical, but also your 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 mental well-being and your cognitive side. So it's really been interesting. Um, one of the other things what we have been doing is we have uh, been working on some development tools. We've created an app, an app that will be really revolutionary. So we can take the in-store and the online and try to meld them together um, in, a, in a way where we can empower the end user on their, on their own device with be their smartphone or their, um, their tablet. And some of the new tools with AR and VR in iOS 14 that will be hitting in the next month or two with Apple and, so, and even 5G will enable the consumer to be much more empowered to help make their decision. And when they come into the showroom, they can interact with the product and obviously interact with our people who are experts in most of the products that we, in all the products that we sell. Lots of exciting things heading the way in the way uh, coming through our industry in the future. So thank you for sharing that and, and know you're at the forefront of that. Um, Doug, post-pandemic, what will the new competitive imperatives for retailers be? So um, the easiest way to sum this up is is that if we imagine that you know the the retail industry was sort of an uh, you know an ecosystem of sorts prior to the pandemic, there were some problems. There were channels that were under siege. There were brands that were having some problems with debt, that sort of thing. There were some brands that were just simply ailing in the marketplace because nobody really cared about them too much anymore. But relatively speaking, things were pretty tranquil. Then a meteor hit the industry and there's no other way really to to describe this except in those terms this was like a meteor strike and it has fundamentally changed the entire chemical composition of the retail world and so whether you are a kitchen and bath uh, retailer uh, whether you are a coffee shop whether you are a bank it doesn't really matter you're going to be affected by this and what i mean by that is this while this has been a really rough crisis for many retailers, this has been a steroid drip for companies like Amazon, for Walmart, Alibaba, uh, JD.com, some of the huge Asian marketplaces. And they are going to use COVID-19 as a window of opportunity to grow to a size that previously would have been unimaginable. They have a, a level of dependency now that has been established with consumers through these lockdowns that is going to enable them not just to grow by doing the things they do currently, but to move into new categories, categories like insurance, healthcare, banking, uh, and, and, and other categories that are far more lucrative, including education, um, far more lucrative for them than just selling running shoes and electronics. So they're going to become even larger. That's going to force a lot of the mini marketplaces like Target, for example, uh, that's going to force them to actually become marketplaces themselves. It won't be good enough anymore to just be a, a large retailer with a decent selection of stuff. They're going to have to expand into the marketplace space as well on a national basis and that's going to mean that every other retailer and business, frankly, in, in America is going to have to reposition itself. And if you consider yourself to be an expert today in what you do, it means you're going to have to rise to a, a new level of knowledge that is so far and away superior to anything else in the marketplace that you carve out that distinct 
mantle of expertise in your market. Um, so it's going to really mean that everyone has to sort of pick what is our strength? You know, is it that we create great experiences in store? Is that we are, we're the most knowledgeable? Is it that we are the tastemakers in the category? We bring in the coolest stuff and we sort of show consumers what's on trend. You've got to answer that question and then you have to be that through every neuron and fiber in your brand's composition. Every single day, you have to reinforce that message to your consumer that you are the single most uh, or best destination for that expertise in your category. So it's really raising the competitive stakes for everybody, Bill. I mean, it's level setting, it's reinventing, it's zero-based planning, it's it's all of that, right? It, it's all of that. So, Russ, what, what would you say, Russ, you know, from your thoughts and, and kind of complimenting on what Doug said, what are the first steps? You're starting in a new, new establishment. Snyder Diamond does not exist. What's the first step you would take to make the most out of the current situation? Well, um, I, I think, as Doug said, you, you have to be a, a profound uh, storyteller, you know, and explain what you do and how you do it. Um, and you have to really connect with the marketplace. So you have to be out there in the marketplace. And I think that's what it's going to take. That's where I see the trends. Uh, the showrooms will be the maybe the final destination, but to get there initially, you have to be out there. I think, you know, what we see is a lot of the initial selling um, after you get through kind of telling what your brand is and branding is the most important thing, whether it be, um, digitally or and and how you conduct yourself and how maybe your employees conduct yourself um, I, I see a lot of selling happening out in the field more so and we're finding that we, you know we've created a, a builder division and that's for 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 multifamily projects and for luxury estates because that's the contractors do not and the builders do not want to you know, visit the showrooms, you know, they're, they're pretty aware of the products these days. We will expose them to things and give them tours of the showroom, but you've got to be out there. You've got to be pulling them in. You can't, they're not, they're not being pushed in. Right. Doug, you talked a lot about like the macro level and even some micro level, but for, for those of our members that are the smaller retailers who perhaps don't have the unlimited resources or smaller budgets, can you give them one or two key takeaways to make brick and mortar and online complement each other most effectively? Yeah, absolutely. And, and I mean, look, there's no reason why a small retailer, in fact, can't replicate some of the stuff that, that these huge marketplaces are doing, like an Alibaba or an Amazon. Fact of the matter is this, uh, and, and I think Russ just made a very good point, and that is that you have to, you have to push information into the market to your customers. So the first step is, first of all, identify your best 20%, your, the 20% of customers that represent your top customers, uh, people over the years that have, have patronized you the most, that have been most loyal, and that have spent the most money with you. Identify who they are. The second piece is, put together a content strategy. You look, you're looking at a store that looks half as, half as full or half empty compared to what it looked like last year. Well, that's great because that means you have a stage and you have a studio now. So if you have someone in the store with an iPhone, you have somebody who really, really knows their stuff and can talk about new products and trends, start pushing content out to YouTube. Start sharing it with that top 20% of customers who are 
arguably hungry for that kind of content. Give them a reason to come in to your store. Um, so you can't just sort of sit there in silence and wait for this thing to end. This is an opportunity for you to pivot, to create amazing content that you can push out to your online audience, bring that audience into the store, and just continue with that cycle. Create content, put it out, invite people in, that creates more content. You can just sort of keep that going out into the marketplace. The other thing I would recommend is look at this as an opportunity to provide a better experience to fewer customers. So yes, you may, you may see fewer people walking into your showrooms, but that's an opportunity for you to lavish them with more service, with more attention, um, with, with uh, you know, a longer dwell time where you can really form a relationship. So Yes, can you apply the same sort of customer experience to all customers that you were before? Perhaps not, but you can certainly give a better experience to those people that do come in. And the last thing, Bill, I'll just mention is um, that it, 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 it's also a great idea if you don't already have it, set up some form of, of uh, communication with customers online who may be looking at your website, may be looking at products and want information, be prepared to intercept that consumer with a potentially a live in-store associate who can talk to them, who can actually assist them through that sale. Uh, we've seen huge results in Asia among companies that are using live stream customer service for online shoppers who may have questions or queries or, you know, or want to know more about their project. So these are tools that, you know, you don't need to be Amazon for this. You need an iPhone and, and probably some uh, white, white label piece of software or an app in order to uh, build this into your site. So um, there's lots that can be done. Uh, you know, in the interim until we get to the point where consumers feel safe again. I mean, great advice. I, I always try to put myself in the consumer shoes. When you are a consumer yourself and expectations that have now been set by companies like Amazon, where you make two clicks and tomorrow this, or sometimes same day, the box shows up. We've set these expectations for environment of business. And so if, if, our, if our members look at it from what is the expectation that you have as a consumer and try to implement some of those, as you say, into their business environment. Great, great, great advice, great advice and experience that you both have shared. It's been like a, a masterclass in retail today. Um, I'm sure we have a lot of. I'm, I'm sure we have a lot of questions. So, Leanne, um, remember type those in the Q and A function if you haven't done so yet. But, Leanne, can you uh, see what's coming in so far for Russ and Doug? And what would you yes. like to ask? And because so many people are back for work, we get inundated with email questions uh, prior to. So I have the list of things that came in via email. Uh, the first one is for Doug. What kinds of unique retail experiences do, do you see appealing to millennial customers? I believe everyone's kind of struggling with, with how to appeal to the millennials. Yeah, so um, uh, it's a good question. I mean, on, on one level, I will say that I think that we have characterized the things that millennials like about retail or the, the things that millennials appreciate about a retail experience, we've sort of, um, we've characterized those as being things that are exclusive to millennials. But the truth is, the things that millennials like about a great shopping experience are pretty much the, the things that anybody likes about a great shopping experience. They like to deal with someone who knows what they're talking about. First and foremost, this is a generation that has never not known Google. They have never not known how to get a clear answer on things. So as soon as they hear somebody say, uh, 
yeah, I'm not sure about that. Or I think you can use that with, you know, that product with this product or, you know, uncertainty doesn't cut it. So your people have to know what they're talking about or they have to have the technology to be able to uh, ask, answer your question. What else do they want? They want to be able to experience the product. They want to be able to see it, feel it, touch it, uh, or, or envision it. You know, it's not good enough to just set up racks of products and, and have everything out of reach. Um, they like an environment that's comfortable, that, that is clearly uh, navigable. And they like to have, uh, you know, they like to, to deal with brands that they can easily access online when they want to or interact with online. So, I mean, these are fundamental things. These aren't the, the, the weird preferences of this strange generation. This is just good retail, you know. Um, Having said that, experience is really important. Um, the product is is ultimately uh, equal to, or in some cases, less important to millennials than the experience of buying the product uh, is to them. So lead with the experience. Really ask yourself as a brand, on this customer journey, have we created roadblocks? Roadblocks to information, roadblocks to expertise, roadblocks to our responsiveness to customers, and, and eliminate those roadblocks, first of all. Fix what's broken, and then ask yourself, have we really created uh, an amazing experience at every single junction in that journey? And if it's not amazing it, to you, if you don't consider it amazing, then fix it. You know, redesign it, uh, incorporate new elements into it. But fundamentally, as I say, millennials just want a great experience with uh, lots of interactivity and people who know what they're talking about. And if you can do those things consistently, you can win with this generation. Do we have one question for Russ, uh, Leanne? We do. Um, this seems to be a, a common concern amongst members. Um, with your luxury products, Russ, um, how did the disruption in the supply chain affect you? Well, um, being able to deliver timely. Um, what we've had to do is um, we've had to uh, make, uh, uh, we've had to bring products in, maybe a before. We're more of a just in time because we basically deliver what is already sold. So we've had to go through future orders, have to forecast, and it's really also for our manufacturers so they can uh, gear their factories and they're trying to be as efficient as they can in order to their order, you know, and manufacture to their orders. So it's really, um, it's really affected our ability to deliver some of our project business, some of the pre-pandemic and even uh, through the pandemic, um, just now are some of our vendors just getting, you know, up to speed in terms of being able to meet their obligations. Even some of the bigger appliance guys are telling us some of their products won't be available until the end of the year. So sometimes we have to, you know, either they have to wait for the product or they have to maybe pivot to an alternative product that we can get right away. Great, great information. A wonderful discussion today. Unfortunately, we're out of time, but I'd like to thank our terrific guests, Russ Diamond of Snyder Diamond and Doug Stevens of Retail Profit for all their valuable insights. And, and thanks to all of you for tuning in. We hope you found it valuable. Next week, uh, 2 p.m. Eastern, we have a special edition of Brave New Business running in conjunction with Cedia Expo's virtual showcase. It's a deep dive into our exclusive living and tax design research all about connected living. I should note that you must register for Cedia to watch the live forum. So I would encourage you to do that 
before next week. It will only take a minute. It's free and you'll have access to valuable smart home tech programming. We just put the link or we're going to put the link in the chat function at the bottom of your screen. So please check it out if you need that link in short form. We'll be welcoming Mike Chorney, president of Lascala, a technology design and integration firm in Vancouver, British Columbia. And my friend Molly Switzer, AKBD, principal of Molly and Switzer Design, past NKBA 30 under 30 and president of NKBA's Columbia River chapter from Portland, Oregon to our panel. One closing note, uh, we mentioned 9-11 uh, earlier on the eve of the 19th anniversary of the September 11th attacks. I'd like to pause for a moment to remember the lives lost and shattered on that terrible day and acknowledge the bravery of our first responders. Thank you. Please follow the NKBA and me on social media and stay well. We'll look forward to seeing you next time. Have a great day.